0: Who are your heroes? I don't mean comic book characters or fictional figures though at certain ages and stages of life, that's fine. I mean the people you look up to or model yourself after. People that represent something you admire by their accomplishments or actions or even just their personality. You may not even really know why they're your heroes if you've not written it out. The act of articulating those feelings has the effect of cementing them. The secondary effect then is that you might well represent those same qualities to someone else. You might be their hero. My father had his heroes, golfers, baseball players, and his older brother, Russell, who was his primary defender through his childhood. But for me, heroes are people who can transcend their day-to-day lives. And whatever station in life they were born into, and make their dreams real. My dad remains a hero of mine, too, because he went through life literally with no enemies and built a company through his grit, intelligence, charm, determination, luck, and his focus on the future. Hank Aaron is a hero of mine. He was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1934 and rose to become one of the greatest baseball players of all time hitting 755 career home runs. Throughout it all, he remained humble, self-effacing, and kind. Throughout his life, he showed courage and determination. That's what heroes are made of. Ansel Adams is a hero of mine. Disfigured as a child when he was thrown to the floor in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, he grew up with older conservative parents. He was an only child. He struggled in school and only completed the eighth grade, but he loved nature. He would take long walks in the dunes that were then near the Golden Gate. He taught himself to play piano and, after 12 years, gave it up to take up photography. Ultimately, he invented a system of exposure and a compositional style I still follow today. His photographs are timeless, emotional, and echo with the power of the moment something I strive to capture. Paul McCartney is a hero because of his seemingly endless flow of creativity. Completely self-taught, his musical gifts are something embraced by literally millions, yet he remains a surprisingly grounded man. Throughout it all, despite being one of the most famous people in the world, he comes across as just a normal guy. No doubt this is due in part to the fact that he chose to be a father, and with his first wife, Linda, raised their children largely out of the public eye. Robin Williams, as a hero, represents three things. Brilliant and lightning-fast wit. Deep and abiding kindness. And the awareness that everyone faces challenges and needs help sometimes. I spend a certain part of every day trying to be funny, to make others laugh. Kindness in words and actions I hope to get better about and try to do this often. And when people need help, I try to provide it. My friend Tom Meyer is a hero of mine, absolutely equal to the rest. Tom is a world traveler who has flown in hot air balloons over the African savanna and hiked in Bolivia, hiding from the Shining Path Rebels, and ridden elephants in Southeast Asia. He's completely fearless, but he's also a gifted, creative person who who assembles remarkable collections of crystals, lights, beads, and God knows what into all these strange, tall creations that seem to have a life of their own. He takes setbacks in stride, and with a dose of humor, always preferring to stay positive and ready for the next challenge or adventure. He has an enormous swath of friends who all say the same thing about him. Love, Tom. Which, for me, reads like an equation. Love equals Tom. And finally, my younger brother Scott. He's my hero too. I just learned he has bone cancer. This news is absolutely devastating to me. I love him dearly. I always have. Even on the day they brought him home, I didn't resent him. He grew up loving music, learned to play the guitar and piano, and he and I wrote quite a number of songs together, making a record in 1982. He's warm, Gracious, thoughtful, and a very kind man. Extremely talented as a woodworker and an excellent writer, I realized a long time ago that he was the best of us. More centered, more real, more courageous, and someone to be admired. As I write this, I have my father's favorite expression in mind with regard to Scott's health. Maybe something good will happen. The American economy is based on one of the tenets of capitalism. Growth equals good. But we live finite lives, live on a planet with shrinking resources, perpetuating what amounts to a delusion that more people, bigger vehicles, bigger homes, more homes, supersized meals, big gulps, and mega-projects are how it was all meant to work. Clearly, it's not what we really want. Do you really want more concrete canyons full of corporate-run outlets and micro-apartments? Do you really want a forest of massive pillars carrying 600-ton trains running through your neighborhood? All for what? To transport people downtown and back again in ever-growing numbers? Is it not clear yet that retail shopping has changed forever? Are we collectively unaware that remote work and augmented reality are forces that are here to stay? Why are people so anxious to live with paper-thin walls and packed together on trains and buses or to get trapped in traffic jams wasting a major portion of each day? In 1973 the brilliant economist E.F. Schumacher wrote a collection of essays called Small is Beautiful. He argued that capitalism brought higher living standards at the cost of deteriorating culture his belief that natural resources should be conserved led him to conclude that bigness, in particular, large industries and large cities, would lead to the depletion of those resources. The full text is actually available online. In West Seattle, we face this dilemma in the next decade. The so-called growth imperative of capitalism means bigger profits, more sales, and a never-ending, always ascending path into infinity. That's nonsense, of course. That's not how the world actually works. Hence the rise of sustainability, recycling, solar power, and other self-imposed control factors that recognize there are limits, and that limits are, in fact, good. Here comes Sound Transit, with a plan to bring light rail to us by, they say, 2030. More likely delayed by other factors to 2035. And the projected cost of the two lines, including Ballard, Jumped from $7.9 billion in 2019 to $12.1 billion, which is a jump exceeding 50% this year. We've suffered with the lack of the West Seattle high rise bridge as the traffic spilled into other neighborhoods. We love our cars, but next summer the bridge will be back, carrying the 100,000 people per day across the Duwamish. Isn't that enough? Do we really want to be Bellevue? Do we even want to be Ballard? Do we honestly want those massive pillars coming up into the junction, all so we can leave? Isn't the quality of life here part of why we live here? I'm suggesting that building a massive anthill of tiny apartments and an ant trail built on concrete trees is the opposite of what we want or need. Is growth inevitable or is it just what we're used to, what corporations demand? Why can't we live in a place that is renewable, attend to changes as they become necessary, and live in a more sustainable, steady-state world? In the next 10 years, some massive changes are going to take place if we can keep ourselves from getting blown up by people who are competing for resources with. Computers will get orders of magnitude faster. Augmented reality will be commonplace. Transportation as a service will be firmly entrenched. Autonomous vehicles will be in use in many cities. The very fabric of work and life will be rewoven. A lot of us are not going to need to go downtown or to Everett or Tacoma. We are building more infrastructure at great cost in service of growth nobody really wants. Don't build it and they won't come. So, why are we working so hard to build a solution to yesterday's problems?